National Security Innovation Capital hit a milestone earlier this year. It obligated all its funds to investments by the end of May. The three-year-old program uses government funds for early-stage hardware companies that benefit the Defense Department. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr found out how it started and where it's going from the fund's director, Tex Schengen. So it's a response to a, a challenge that was recognized a few years ago that the country faces. And that is that there is not enough private venture capital from trusted sources that is willing to invest in very early stage hardware startup companies. The reasons for that are that hardware is technically a lot more demanding, a lot riskier, uh, takes a lot more capital and takes a lot longer before you have something that potential customers can really evaluate. So that whole risk profile is not very attractive to most venture capital firms until later stages where the risk has been reduced. The problem that creates is we have a lot of innovation in this country, great tech startups, uh, terrifically creative people, and they're struggling to find the funds that they need to take their big idea to the next step. And either they can't get that done, or as we were realizing, capital from our adversaries was stepping in to fill the gap. And that, of course, could lead to negative consequences for the company uh, and the technology going to countries that don't wish us well. And so when you step in to fund an early stage startup, are you partnering with other venture capital? Are you saying, if you'll do 30, we'll do 60? Or is it straight up government funds? So I think there are three different situations. Um, the first is that we come in before other private, before private venture capital firms are willing to. So we'll be the first serious money into uh, an early stage dual use hardware startup company. And if we do that right, they will take those funds and they'll develop their technology to the next major milestone um, in their product development plan that reduces their risk profile, and then private venture capital will follow on. So that's one model. A couple of the companies we've funded have had a small amount of, of private venture capital before we arrived, but it wasn't enough to help them go as fast as they were capable of. And so we come in a little bit after a modest amount of private VC funding. And then the, the third one is that we actually do almost simultaneously with venture funds. Our funds, our commitment to funding the company unlocks some VCs that were kind of just on the edge of whether they wanted to invest or not. And when we've made a commitment, then they say, oh, okay, well, DOD is really interested in this. We'll put our money in. I know in traditional venture capital, there's sort of a formula for failure rate. Do you have a failure rate we're willing to fund these companies and a certain number of them are going to not do what we need them to do? We don't really think about it in quite that way. Um, what we look for is companies who are developing products based on uh, emerging critical technologies where we see clear applications in, in both commercial opportunities as well as in the Defense Department. We try to pick teams that we think are really capable of executing. And then we 
look to see if they will get to the next stage. Have they accomplished that development program? And that to us is the initial success. Did they actually deliver on the milestone that they signed up with us to accomplish? A second milestone is, do they go on to raise additional money if they need it from private venture sources? And eventually, do they actually get to market and sell products um, to both commercial and defense applications? We don't have a percentage goal there, um, but we don't have quite as high a bar as a typical venture capital firm would who looks only to fund so-called unicorns. And why did you pick uh, hardware specifically? Because that's where the challenge is. Software doesn't have nearly the same technical risk. Uh, doesn't have the capital requirements. You can mock up a software product pretty quickly and have customers begin to interact with it. And that takes a lot less time, a lot less has a lot less technical risk, and you get so-called market traction much faster. That's just more appealing to the venture capital firms who are, after all, uh, financial investors. It's a risk-reward thing. Talking about this year, is it unusual that you would have obligated all your funds so early in the year? Yes, we had not done that in the previous two fiscal years. Uh, I think part of it is we're better known now than we were. Part of it is that we had a really good set of submissions from companies that we thought were deserving. And part of it is we also had some companies from the prior year and we didn't have quite enough money to fund them at the level that they really needed and could use. And so we came back to a couple of those companies with this year's money and added some additional funds. As you've gone through this process from when you started to now, are there things you are doing differently now than when you started? Not really. We had a, if you will, a theory about what this problem was and what our role could be. And we have been proving that out over the last three fiscal years, last two and a half years of operations. Mostly it was about getting launched. It was about setting in place our processes, putting our contracting system in place, um, just getting up and running. We were ourselves a startup at the beginning. And then it was to figure out, was our hypothesis really accurate? Do hardware startup companies need this kind of funding? Does our funding make them more attractive to private venture capital? Uh, are they actually delivering on the milestones that they signed up for? And all of those things have turned out to be true. So, so far the formula is working. And how about sort of spreading the funds out? Or do you do anything to make sure all the money isn't going to bigger companies or companies that are located around traditional tech hubs? Yeah. So we have five different topics of interest. Um, they're fairly broad autonomy, communications, power, sensors, space. There's a lot of overlap among those things and a lot of co-relationships among them. But we try to make sure that we fund companies across those five different topics. We don't focus just on Silicon Valley by any means. We now have funded companies in, it's either 10 or 11 states across the country. Yes, that's California and Texas, but it's also Indiana and Michigan and North Carolina. Um, in Connecticut. Uh, so that's been very important to us. 
National Security Innovation Capital's Tex Schengen talking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who 
were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart 
or anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.